Hello and welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I am Sean Coletti, contributing writer to Sound On Sight, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Kate Kolzik, TV editor at Sound On Sight. Hello, Kate. Hey, Sean. How's it going? It's okay. You've not been experiencing any natural disasters in Illinois, have you? Well, let's not, not jinx things. We have gotten an earthquake here once. Okay. I, I guess I've just been sleeping through them, but I, there's been like three or four in the past week. I felt the one last night here in in LA. It was it was uh, the biggest one I've been through, but like it was still like not as the news has gone nuts for it. And it was not that big of a deal. It really has, yeah. Well, um, this week we're going to be talking about season two, episode five, Mukozuke, written by Ayana Ford, Steve Lightfoot, and Brian Fuller, and directed by. Michael Reimer, and joining us this week, who has just spoken, is none other than TV editor at the AV Club, Todd Vanderwerf. Hello, Todd, and thank you for joining us. Hey, guys. Uh, sorry sorry to disrupt your rapport. <laughs> tales of surviving an earthquake in a Target. Todd, I wanted to start uh, this week with you regarding Will Graham's journey as a character, I guess. In this morning's walkthrough with uh, Brian Fuller at the AV Club, sure. he's talking about Will's decision to have Hannibal killed, and he says, you know, he had it coming. You know, from your perspective, are you convinced that this is a decision Will would make, and does it color your perception of him? Uh, absolutely, I think it's a decision he would make. I think he's been pushed to his absolute limit, and I think that this is... This is the point when he he sort of realizes that he's not going to win this game through conventional means. Um, so he he you know he takes the big step of having Hannibal killed. Although of course because Hannibal's name is in the title of the show, he will not be killed. Spoiler uh, I, alert, Todd. <laughs> well, you know he may someday, but uh, <laughs> but for in season two it seems unlikely. Um, but yeah, I, I thought I completely bought that he would do this. And uh, it makes me see him I, I, this season. I think if it has a thing I can complain about, it's that Will has been sort of limited in what he can do necessarily by where the story has placed him. And this sort of makes me view him as someone who will grasp at any option that comes to him. And I, I like that. I like that a lot. I like that in this episode, we get several characters reactions to that as well. And in that last sequence, we get to see Hannibal's reaction when he realizes that Will has um, put up Jonathan Tucker's character to this. But Kate, what do you think this does from Alana Bloom's perspective? How is she going to react to him consciously orchestrating someone's murder? I think she's going to have a really hard time with this. And uh, based on the trailer we saw for next week, I think we'll see some uh, events, you know, some choices that she makes that are very much colored by this. But of course, those could always be misleading. And I know some people consider them the spoilers, so I won't go any further into that. But I, I do think that this is a direct slap in, in her face, you know, of the reality that no, Will is still a person capable of orchestrating someone's death she's wanted to tell herself that even though she believes he killed people it that wasn't really him he's not really capable of that he was sick he was not in control of his actions whatever and this directly contradicts that he, he couldn't be more steady and in his own mind when she's talking to him and so that's going to really shake her yeah, I can definitely see where she would take this as a kind of betrayal, just given the conversations that they've had so far, even just in this season, where she's been really reaching out and trying to help him, either by um, inducing those those memory recovery exercises or kind of just holding his hand there at the end of that one episode and just saying that she wants to help save him. 
Um, but there's a lot to talk about in this episode. Obviously, we get the fallout from Beverly's death from last episode. And I wanted to talk about the arrangements of this. Um, in the episode, it is Will, while he's doing the reenactment of the crime and the murder. He says, I pull her apart layer by layer like she would a crime scene, which is kind of the only insight we get to that. And it might be because Hannibal, Hannibal Lecter, isn't there, and he's usually the one who kind of gives that insight into how the, the killer operates and kind of what their twisted philosophies are. Um, and so I was kind of just interested because this is one of the few instances in which we don't get that interpretation from one of the characters. If either of you have an interpretation about the layout of that, you know, her body being divided into pieces. I, I just, I thought it was a, a, a gruesome tableau. Um, I thought this was probably the, the season's first really memorable one. Like the mural is obviously a memorable image, but in terms of a single like body being found, I thought, I thought it was um, fascinating. I, I guess I've mostly been, I, I watched this episode a couple of weeks ago because I, I see everything sort of ahead of time so I could do my interviews. And, and I was, it, it did not once occur to me the level to which this would inflame like sort of the fan base. Like people have been very upset about it. Um, but I, now that like watch watching the episode with that in my mind, I can see that like this is, I could see where some would see this as, as intentionally provocational, but I guess to me, Beverly was never as vital of a character as she was to some. And I, I, I thought this season did a good job of making her somebody that I, I, I cared about just in time for her to die. But it seemed to me like that's sort of the MO of the show. I, I don't know. What do you think, Kate? Well, it's interesting. I, yeah, I, I tend to watch Hannibal. I, I watch it live or close to, but I tend to not really be following anything that's going on on Twitter or really the, the reaction because I'm trying to watch Hannibal and you can't multitask yeah. while you're watching this show. And certainly I don't want to read a bunch of other reviews before we record our podcast. So I haven't dived into the comment sections yet. So that's interesting to hear that because for me, this isn't a gruesome tableau. It didn't strike me as being abhorrent in a way that some of the other ones have this season. It was very memorable. It is very memorable, I should say. And I think for the thing for me is that it's so clean and so precise. And that feels very fitting for Beverly, the character. And it's very possible I'm just reading into, I, I want to think that Hannibal respects her in, in, yeah. in to some extent. But to me, it felt like a tribute to her and her scientific mind and her methodical approach to her work to so cleanly divide her and present her in this manner. And so to me, it felt more respectful in a strange animal kind of way. So that's, you know, that's interesting. And then as soon as you start to think about the specifics of what would actually go into de devising something like this, did he just have that plastic around? I <laughs> yeah, I feel like this season has been like really pushing the limits of what is physically capable of someone to do in the amount of time presented. And I just like, they froze, she froze her body very quickly. And like, cause, cause like her absence would have been noted if she had been gone for, you know, more than a day. And so he froze her body very quickly. And he had this whole, like, like he apparently buys in bulk from home Depot and has like <laughs> all this plastic sheeting of it. Yeah. It's, it's crazy, but it's a fun crazy. See, I want to see. I want to see the montage of him assembling her 
and like <laughs> taking out the liver and then putting the other one in, but it keeps slipping out and he keeps having to put it back. Like, oh. set, and I feel like, you know, he's trying to set up the, the different pillars so that there's, you know, and I'm, I'm picturing like a domino effect and it's, it's all set to yakety sacks. This is in my mind and it's horrible and I'm a bad person. And, and Sean, what was your reaction to this tableau? Just coming off of what you're saying, yeah. Now I'm starting to think that what Beverly is looking at at the end of that last episode that we don't get to see, it's just a lot of plastic, and she's just so surprised by how much Hannibal <laughs> has in his stock. Um, I had a lot of the similar reactions that you did, Kate, to this. Those questions of respect, I think, are really interesting. And we talked a little bit last week about Hannibal's, um, I guess, attitudes towards his cannibalism, and this is something that's not really been brought up in the show much but now that we've been given this i think that we have a little bit more to go off and maybe speculate because it could be i'd have to think about it and then go like case by case but i don't know if there's a consistency based on his victims you know who he decides to eat who he doesn't and the weird part about this one is that we learned that he had saved james gray's kidneys so he didn't eat him um he replaced beverly's with those and he decided to eat Beverly which makes me think that it might be some kind of ritualistic way to honor the person who is stronger I guess if we assume that he did have that kind of respect for Beverly but then I'm not really sure because we've seen him eat people who he's not had as much respect for um, Todd have you noticed any kind of pattern with these or is it just kind of a case-by-case -case basis I, I think he's just I think he's just improvising in the moment. Like I, I haven't I haven't noticed any particular pattern. I, I don't um but I'm also I guess not looking for it. Like I, I all I need to know is that he's a cannibal and I I think that's good enough for me. I also wonder if there's a any sort of correlation between who he if there's people that he saves for himself and there's people he shares. <laughs> and I don't know if there would be a correlation there or if it's just it's all it's all meat to him because yeah. of that thing from season one about how he views his victims as as pigs. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, I'm, and of course, now I will start thinking about this in a delightful way, just adding layer upon layer to the ways that Hannibal is gross and also very interesting. Do you, do you think it's a, like a way of defiling her corpse almost? Or was that replacement just a means of kind of getting the plot down so that? The, the forensics people would recognize that. Or even just uh, maybe Hannibal not realizing they're going to, thinking he's going to be able to get pull that past them, which you'd think he shouldn't think that, given that he knows Beverly, or he, he's kind of sent Beverly to find his last cleverly hidden thing in James Gray's, in, in the uh, muralist's body. I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure how to read that. I think he's just toying with them. I, I think that he thinks he's, I, I've always, you know, I think Hannibal has sort of a contempt for everybody around him who he does not view as smart as him um, outside of perhaps will um, and occasionally Jack. Um, I, I think that he very much uh, thinks that he can toy with the, the forensics guys and, and get away with it. Like he can leave them clues, but they'll never draw, come to the right conclusion. Um, and, and honestly, the, the one person who uh, who could is Will, and he's already fully discredited Will completely. And uh, except, you know, we we sort of have the idea that Beverly bought into his uh, his thoughts, which is why Beverly had to go. So, yeah, and that also is the big thing that for me connects with what we were talking about earlier about why Will takes this next step 
because he knows he's not going to find somebody else who will listen to him in any way. He had an in with Beverly because he knew the way that she approached science and the way she approached a crime scene and the way she approached her life, that he could talk to her and and she would completely just take the facts that she could discover and interpret as they were without that extra bias. And he knows he's not going to find that again. So any chance he had at a at a cleaner I should say, an attempt to, to clear his name is gone with Beverly. And that's why we see him take the moves he does this week. All right, so we were speculating last week, given now that Beverly's gone, who's going to be of some assistance to Will. And we get the return of Eddie Izzard as Abel Gideon in this episode, and he has interactions not just with Will, but with Hannibal and with Alana Bloom. And, and obviously he's the one who sets Alana Bloom on the path of figuring out just what he's up to. But... Um, Todd, were you glad to see Eddie Izzard return? And I think when I was trying to recall, I didn't even know if he had made it out of season one alive. So it was a bit of a surprise. But what did you think of some of his interactions with some he, of these characters? Yeah, when he popped up, uh, I, I thought he was dead, um, <laughs> to be <laughs> honest. Uh, but then there he was. He, he was back. I, I, I enjoyed seeing him. I think Eddie Izzard has a great sort of way of delivering Brian Fuller's dialogue, of delivering the cadence of dialogue on this show. Um, Eddie Izzard's, I think, sort of one of my favorite underrated actors, so I I always enjoy seeing him pop up. And I think that Abel adds uh, an interesting element to the rest of the show. Without spoiling next week's episode, he has a lot to do there, and he's such a fun presence. Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, Eddie Izzard, and one of these days someone will, will come on the Televerse to talk about the riches with us, and I'll be able to you know, slather more praise on him. But I'm a big fan of him uh, in the right kind of role, and I think this is uh, just a really enjoyable uh, performance from him. And it, yeah. it, it, he balances it just right. It's not too cackly. I think in his the first season, I still really enjoyed the performance, but I think it was a little bit more heightened. He, this feels like an Abel Gideon who's had some time to himself uh, and the time to reflect and is, you know, yeah. a different, a slightly different person than when we last saw him. And this, this balancing of uh, his performance to these different scenes works really well. And uh, I even just, you know, seeing him with Alana again, seeing him with, with Hannibal and, and watching him perform basically for, for Dr. Chilton in his interview with Hannibal, I thought was a lot of fun too. Yeah. That scene, especially for me was really good. Just the way that, he played it up about the details that you notice in people's face and having not ever seen his before. That was fantastic. Um, another addition that we get this week is Jonathan Tucker as the orderly and the, I guess you'd call him the admirer of Will Graham. And he, I also thought, put in a really great performance. Appropriately creepy, of course, but uh, I think he was speaking with some kind of lisp to begin with and then dropped that in his conversation with Will. Um, Kate, what did you think of him, given that we've talked a little bit about the one-episode serial killers throughout Hannibal, and, and do you think we're going to see some more of him? Um, well, I don't know. It depends on if he's dead at the end. I would have thought Sorry. he was dead, but then again, I would have thought that Abel Gideon was dead, so <laughs> who knows? Um, we likely may. I enjoyed the performance quite a bit. I, It's fun to see a different side of, of Tucker. I you know, enjoyed him in the way that you're supposed to on Parenthood, being Bob Little, who is terrible. Uh, and so to watch this very different performance from that actor was fun. And uh, I like the approach that he takes and that the show takes with his attack on Hannibal. I like that it uh, is just he shoots him in the back with a dart, because if you're going to try to take out Hannibal, 
you certainly don't try to take him out head on. That's just stupid. And, you know, so like, I, I really enjoyed that interaction. And I mean, it was a bit cackly villain. It was a bit over the top. And, you know, he's not supposed to be smart, basically. So, yeah, I think that is, I think that works. But I think that's also, you know, it's a very familiar kind of cackly villain one-off character. I'm going to refrain from asking you, Todd, just because you know more than us, so I don't want any spoilers on that if he returns or not. But um, we could talk a little bit about one of the other central relationships, and obviously the the Will, Graham, and, and Hannibal Lecter relationship is key to this entire series, but Jack has been a huge part of this season, I think, and we've gotten a lot of development with him and Hannibal. We get the, the great opening scene where they're discussing the aftermath of Bella's attempted suicide, um, and you know Hannibal talks about trying to be a good therapist, trying to be a good friend. But later we get some Will and Jack scenes where Jack lets him out of his binding so that he can go through the crime scene in the, the observatory. And as Will says, allows him to say goodbye to, to Beverly. And then there's also Will wanting Jack to kind of find his own way. He refrains from suggesting once again that Hannibal is the one who's perpetrating all of this. He wants Jack to get there, and we know that he will eventually. But Todd, how do you feel about where Will and Jack are now, given that Jack and Hannibal have become much closer in these first few episodes? Uh, first, I just want to say that Jonathan Tucker uh, will be playing Bob Little on Hannibal in episodes to come <laughs> when, Hannibal, when Hannibal decides to run for mayor. Uh, it's kind of a weird out-of-nowhere plot turn, and, and it doesn't really work, but whatever. Um, no, the uh, I, I've enjoyed the way that this season has sort of turned into an elaborate uh, chess game between Will and and uh, and Hannibal to use a metaphor that is overused in serialized television, um, and that they're sort of like figuring out who's going to be whose ally, and and you think you know everybody's bought into Hannibal's line of thinking, but Jack is also very close to Will, so maybe Will can sort of pull on that emotional tug. Um, I, I found the scene where, where Jack uh, brings him to look at, at, at Beverly's uh, to help dis- dissect that crime scene. I found it very uh, moving. And uh, I, I think uh, the idea that, that Will realizes, you know, people aren't going to listen to him if he just says – Hannibal did this instead of saying, you know, like the Chesapeake Ripper did this. Um, I, th- I think that Will is now sort of trying to play the same game Hannibal is, uh, only dropping clues that will lead them to Hannibal, whereas Hannibal is, is sort of dropping clues in an attempt to suggest that they'll never catch him. And I, I find that interesting. We get um, some really great reactions, and, and great's probably not the most appropriate word, but really, like you said, um, I think touching in regards to Beverly, even Jimmy and Brian. We, we get to see Jack talk to the FBI that's being narrated over kind of Jack's private conversation with the two. And I just thought that Brian Fuller and the other two writers handled all of that with a lot of respect for that character who, who had really kind of stepped up in these past few episodes. Now, I agree with that. However, that was the moment in this episode that took me out of it. I was willing to go go with it for everything. The fact that this orderly, this guy manages to get this job as this orderly, theoretically, so that he can be close to Will, or who knows why. But like, I was willing to give this episode everything. Like, the fact that Hannibal somehow managed to transport a frozen body without it falling, yeah, all of that, yes. I was not willing to give it. The FBI has the two co-workers and friends of the victim doing the autopsy. That I would not give it. 
didn't they, you know, maybe this got edited out from the screener I saw, though. I, I don't imagine. Don't, don't they say, like, you know, they, they, they're they told they don't have to, and they're like, no, we're going to do it for, to help avenge her death or yeah. something like that. Yeah, but that's ridiculous. There's a difference between do you want to do it and no, legally you are not allowed to, much like they don't let doctors operate on their loved ones. You, They they don't have detectives investigate, you know, be the investigators on the crimes of their partner, you know, murders of their partners. It would be the same thing. I think that the episode three showed us that the legal system in the Hannibal universe Hannibal takes place in is very different from the one in our yeah. universe. So. <laughs> yeah, I, but I just enjoy that that's the thing that I won't give it <laughs> as ridiculous as that is. All right. So you've now mentioned again that the, the legal episode, episode three and that brings us to the reveal here that um, that Hannibal did kill the judge. It was not him who killed the bailiff. That was the orderly. So we were having a discussion, Todd, after that episode about this scene that happens, the one of the Will's visions where he's being let out of his cell and then Hannibal beckons him back in. Um, and kind of how that was a conflicted image of Hannibal wanting Will in his, I guess, day-to-day life, kind of, you know, in that empty chair across from him in his study but also he can't have himself exposed. So we see that the orderly took the step to exonerate Will. Hannibal took the step to keep him locked in. So what is his game right now, given that we do see glimpses of him wanting to reconnect with Will in some manner? I think I think Hannibal uh, terribly misses Will. I think like he, they were, I think like in Hannibal's head, they legitimately were friends. And uh, I think that he feels in some ways betrayed. Uh, I think he's probably slightly impressed by, but also betrayed by Will for having, you know, uh, figured out that he's, he's the, the ultimate evil here. Um, And I think, I think Hannibal really would love to shove that genie back into the bottle and uh, sort of convince Will to uh, be his friend again, and I don't, I don't know if that's possible. Particularly after he tries to have him killed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like how there's like a sense of really, oh, but come on, from Hannibal. He's like, wait, Will wanted you to kill? It's like, dude, of course Will wanted him to kill you. Are you kidding me? I love that that that's something that he needs, you know, connected for him. That was yeah, that was a great reaction, and there was that tinge of being slightly impressed, which I think just works so well, and it's something that, that Mass Mickelson can really convey just with his face. Um, we want to talk a little bit about, I guess, some of the technical stuff. Last week, we had a really great kind of horror film-esque ending to that episode, and, and this week, I think, even though it doesn't have the same kind of tension, this last sequence, which is like, you know, the race to, to go get Hannibal, is also really well done in terms of using that tension even though it's kind of a quieter scene you have like a conversation between um the hannibal and the orderly just from i guess the technical aspects what impressed you about that kate well i think the imagery of it was was striking and it was creative i don't i i didn't have a sense of where they were uh where the orderly had set up this elaborate thing and how he had managed to do it so quickly uh, but I'll give the show that. But I think it was just, it was striking to see, Yeah, obviously, I'm not sure, and I was expecting a question like this from you, Sean, because you always stump us with these great questions. I, I'm not sure what the religious imagery necessarily meant 
and I look forward to hearing your guys' thoughts on that. But I do think that it was striking, and I think it is certainly interesting to see this Tucker character, the orderly, trying out his own iconography because the only other murder we've seen from him was him attempting to mimic will yeah uh, i think hannibal is jesus i think that's been sort of proved by this episode clearly <laughs> um no i the show obviously plays around with catholic and, and christian imagery and um this was sort of the ultimate example of that and i think in some ways it's sort of showing how uh, the the sacred and the profane get all mixed up in this world because you have a very essentially sacred image, but it's it's taken over in its center by the, the show's most profane, most evil character. And it's uh it's it's an interesting tension because it's I think in some ways sort of commenting how on the fact in that moment you want Hannibal to be saved because if Hannibal is dead, then there's no show, really. Um, but you also want him to be saved because then Will is not in some ways damned. Um, like, killing Hannibal is in some ways a justifiable action, but it's still murder, you know? I it's, mean, it's in not... every way it's a justifiable action. Come on. But it's st- it's still murder, you know? It's still like he's still planning out and carrying out a murder. And, like, that is the sort of thing that your hero is not supposed to do in a story like this. So it's uh, it, it's it's Will taking that, that one step too far, one step over the line that, uh, you know, could put him in the same league as that which he's chasing. And, like, season one was so much about him not wanting to be a murderer, and now he sort of gives in to that impulse here. And, uh, and I think that that tableau is sort of commenting on the tension we feel from that central conflict. Yeah, the religious imagery there was really interesting. I wonder if we got to see Tucker's character more often do his own thing rather than just um, mimicking Will, if that would be kind of his modus operandi. But um, I think what I was thinking about as that was happening was what Hannibal had said last week about kind of relinquishing himself or accepting death and kind of how that has allowed him to view the, the beauty and the horror in life. And I guess that that falls in line with the image, you know, of, of Jesus kind of accepting that fate and dying for the sins. And so there's somewhat of a similar theme of acceptance there. There's also, uh, at least for me, a distinct parallel the show is drawing between Beverly and Hannibal in their two states in this episode, because you have the melting and dripping water with the blood at, at the first crime scene at the observatory. And then you have wet from the pool Hannibal also dripping blood too. So there's two different victims and the two sides of the coin there with, you know, the the obvious innocent of Beverly and, you know, the devil uh, who's apparently very good at cards, uh, Hannibal. And so I think there's, you know, that imagery there is also, you know, a continuing theme as well as just water. Water is everywhere in this season of Hannibal. It absolutely yeah. is. And that was something that I wanted to talk about. And this was the thing that I was really having trouble with I guess, interpreting, and oftentimes, probably, we're not really meant to to focus on it that much, but we're doing a Hannibal podcast, so why not? Let's go for it. It was as we see Hannibal, and we see that dripping water and the the blood going down through the drain, um, we keep coming back to Will in his cell, and the, the water in his faucet turns to blood, and then it begins to overflow, and there's the parallel there between the two, and we can almost, like, kind of take it as Will seen. Hannibal's blood overflowing his sink. So, but then we know that Hannibal doesn't die, and yet the thing completely overflows. I, I guess I just had a hard time kind of making sense 
of what was trying to be explained visually there, if you have any idea about that, Todd. Um, I, I think that, that, uh, we just like the show sort of runs out of ways to show mental processes. And that's one of the most important things is think is watching characters think on this show. And like, like Hugh Dancy is such a, such a fascinating actor to sort of watch his, his mental wheels turn. I, I really think that this is just them like trying to draw a connection, you know, between sort of all these long hours he sits there in this cell and, and, and watches what I've lovingly dubbed sink face, <laughs> watches sink face sort of, you know, drip away. And then, uh, uh, then, you know, they just sort of that, his mind, how it's sort of working over these hours and kind of coming to peace with what he has to do. Um, at least that's how I read that. And I think sink face is the breakout character of this season. Yeah. That should easily get the, the Emmy nomination for guest spot, right? Yeah. <laughs> hey, you mentioned the use of water, and one of the things that really stuck out to me in this episode was very early on when um, Alana and Jack are sitting down with Will, and he's just heard the news about Beverly's death. We hear the sounds of rushing water as if he's trying to enter that, that Riverside Mine Palace that we've seen him in for most of the season, but he, he can't get there. He's distracted. Um, this news has maybe sent him overboard. So I just thought that playing off of what you had said, that water does serve a really important part of this season. And also in that that scene, what, the thing I love about the scoring in that moment is, yes, you get a, very much the sense of water from the instrumentation. And uh, you know, it sounds like a, a rain uh, stick or something, you know, in, in your instrumentation there. But also there's, for me, I was hearing the sound of chains as well. So it's the sense of, is he being rushed away is he trying to get to his wine palace and the stream but then there's the chain holding him back not letting him get to there and it's also tying in with just the fact that again he's he can't help he can't do anything uh, he, because he's in prison and he's being held down there so then there's a sense of drowning being especially the way that the the orchestration rises up and is so much stronger in that moment and thicker than it is for much of the rest of the episode. So I, I really particularly loved that, that bit of scoring in, in an episode where I enjoyed much of the scoring, I will be honest. Well, you've now opened the door to the first of our two recurring segments on the podcast, which is Kate's classical corner, which is very easy to say if you do it multiple times. <laughs> um, so Kate, what can you tell us about the scoring in uh, Mukozuke? Well, I, I actually, I'm curious to see what you guys think of, of this, because I have a, I just always am going to have a different relationship with this type of scoring, being a classical musician. So when I'm hearing these, this percussion and drums throughout the entire episode, I'm very much, uh, I, it feels very deliberate to me and it feels very uh, precise, whereas I'm sure maybe to some people it feels more improvisatory. Um, so I, I can like see the visual of the percussionist creating these sounds, and I understand how measured and controlled that is. So I'm curious if, if that sense was conveyed to you guys as well, or if that's just me. Um, and then I can, after I hear what you guys think about that, I can dive into, we have three different classical pieces that are featured in this episode that uh, I can talk about a bit. But I'm, I'm curious what you guys thought of all that, that omnipresent percussion I have I have learned uh, just sort of to I think that the score on this show just sort of now affects me on like a like a subconscious level so I'm not like consciously paying attention to it um, but but it's uh, I'm always impressed by it and always uh, I'm always sort of struck by the the show's uh, guts to go with non traditional scoring and as much as possible go with just uh, sounds instead of you know melody. 
what struck me about this episode was that it felt like the percussion was used to even stronger effect than usual. Like it, there was a scene that was right before the commercial break that ended on really strong percussion notes. And then we had the commercials and then came back and then immediately boom, right back in that as if they were really trying to establish that throughout the episode. So obviously I don't have any like technical knowledge here, but it felt like it was even more of a presence here. The specific pieces that I can tell you guys about are uh, obviously the episode begins to Schumann's, uh, Schumann's Kinderzenin. I probably pronounced that wrong. I'd never learned German. Uh, the, number one, the first piece, it's a, it's a set of sh short pieces for piano, um, and it's scenes of childhood. So it's the notion is that Schumann was writing pieces for adults to play to other adults, but that are reminiscent of childhood. So they are deceptively simple, but they are actually rather challenging to play very well, seeing as they are so simple. Um, it, it's, it's von Fremden Landen und Menschen, uh, far, I think it's far, foreign lands and people, something like that. Um, but it's, it's a really short, simple piece. And uh, what I noticed about it specifically, it's from 1838, is that the you have a tr always, in each of the pieces that I'm going to mention quickly here, you, there's uh, triplets and there's a sense of water. It, it goes through each of the pieces. So often in, in music, when you have triplets, that that's going to be like a flowing motion. Uh, that could be water, that could be dancing. But uh, for me, I was connecting it to water here. I was also connecting that with the next piece, which is very soft underneath the breakfast scene with uh, Hannibal and Jack. And that's uh, La Cathedral Anglique. Angliki, something like that, the Drowned Cathedral, which is by uh, WC, and it has, a, again, a 6-4 kind of triplet uh, sense, but the, it's much slower in its chords. It's about a, a sunken cathedral that rises out of the water in Britain mythology. And then sinks back down, and then we get a Chopin Nocturne that again has triplets in the bass, while much like the Schumann, uh, triplets in the bass while it has duples in the top. So there's an inherent conflict, but at the same time bringing the of those two sides together. And again, for me, I always associate triplets like that with with water. So I thought that might be of interest to you guys. These these all fit squarely within that notion of what we talked about the last time we brought up classical music on the podcast, Sean, of these being romantic pieces. And uh, so we have 1836, 1838, and 1910, the WC being impressionist as opposed to romantic. But that's a little bit of an overview. Oh, you, that's not too technical. <laughs> you've just experienced Kate's classical corner. Oh, and the last other thing I will mention is that very specifically, the music while uh, Hannibal is eating the kidney is not classical. It's original composition. It is not solo piano like each of these other moments and like much of the percussion. We have cello very distinctly brought in. We have half steps, uh, minor seconds, major seconds, followed by leaps, but always under an octave. It's very unsettling, very specific, and it's it stays very much in the range of the human voice, which makes it very relatable. And that half, that major and minor second is often used in music to be a sob and to really be very evocative in that way so that's what i was noticing about that piece of music as well fantastic and that will bring us to the second of our recurring segments which is the devil in the details so just you know visual details oral details one-liners from the script anything that stands out uh, we haven't even talked about freddie lounge yet but the one that i wanted to mention was how fantastic that scene uh, was where the antlers are coming out of will's back um they look like 
just demon horns at first, but then we get the recurring antler imagery, um, which has been fantastic throughout. But what stood out to you, Todd, in this episode in terms of some of the the minor details? Uh, again, I, I watched it a, a couple weeks ago, but um, I, I think uh, I was really impressed. I remember being impressed by sort of the location they found. I'm always impressed by the locations on this show, but I was particularly impressed by the location they found for the uh, the the old swimming hole. Is what I'm going to call it. Uh, when Han, the place where Hannibal goes to to swim, uh, where he is overtaken by the the copycat killer or the the secret admirer, I think this one's referred to as. Um, I, I just such a great old building full of just being just incredibly ominous and like it just felt like the kind of place where something like that would happen. I I, I liked that location. Yeah, in the the walkthrough. Fuller talks about the American Gothic of it all and kind of how um, Lynch and Cronenberg have been a big influence on it. And I'm beginning to see that now as, as we're going along. And it's been a big part of the series. You know, we talk about the the sound and the kind of art direction of it all really contributing to the atmosphere. But location is something that I've not really paid attention to much, but obviously it really contributes a lot. So, um, Kate, any details stand out to you? Well, I, one that immediately stood out to me and I was just kind of flabbergasted by this when I was starting the episode Hannibal's not wearing a suit he's he's wearing a sweater and his hair's like all folly in his face what has he not worn a suit at another time in the series this was uh straight out of bed Hannibal I think yeah that that I that was very noticeable to me and then of course later on he's got that great suit when he's having the drinks with Chilton so it was like a it was a contrast there but I was I was sort of staring at my screen going but but Hannibal, but there's no tie. Uh, so I that was interesting. And uh, also when we see Hannibal eating the the kidney, I love the set design behind him where there are those two what appear to be like ivory kind of horns basically coming out of his head. It's not subtle, but it's fun. And I enjoyed that uh, quite a bit. And then again, I'll reiterate that that imagery of the, the horns or the thorns coming out of will was was very horrific and uh and very effective and i guess the last thing i'll say is that we haven't really mentioned but obviously the observatory comes back which is such a great location but i like that they don't mention miriam in this episode they leave it to the viewer to remember that that's where we found her arm and i appreciate that restraint absolutely yeah todd if you didn't already know some of the source material how many episodes would you give freddie lowndes to be living much longer <laughs> um actually i think the even if i didn't know the source material the the reporter who sort of stays one step ahead of the bad guys is such a trope of this genre that i like i would not be surprised honestly by freddie lounge like staying alive for the bulk of the show like I, she just seems like the kind of kind of cockroach who sort of survives these situations and i feel the same way about uh chilton because uh perhaps because he's played by raul esparza as soon as hannibal walks out of the the hospital just that face that he gives freddie lounge is priceless absolutely priceless yeah you can tell he just wants to eat her right there <laughs> um was there anything else in this episode that either of you wanted to bring up any issues that we haven't addressed yet or any questions I, I like that uh, the last thing I guess that I'll have, because, I, again, I'm enjoying the season so much, and I like, I'm like i so glad that we're doing this podcast so I get to really dive into it each week. I, I think that the next person, ironically, who's going to jump on board Team Will in a way is going to be Jack, because what this episode shows to me is that unlike Alana, 
who follows her head. Jack follows his heart. And we see that this week because he lets Will come to the crime scene. And that's something that doesn't make any sense. He shouldn't be doing it. There's no reason for him to be doing it. But he trusts his gut that that Will can help on this and that, that Will did not do it and is not responsible in any way and that Will will want to help. And so I think the fact that he, in this moment of, of head versus heart, goes with heart or, or gut tells us that that's going to be the next person to to really start moving us towards where we know the season is eventually going to get, which is that fantastic fight scene from the beginning of the season. Yeah, just everything that's been weighing down on Jack, whether it's Bella, whether it's having a serial killer on the loose, or having what was once a very close friend incarcerated, it seems to be leading towards him jumping on board Team Will just because he needs something to believe in right now, and taking that leap of faith obviously is going to eventually lead him to the truth, which is great. But if that's it, Todd, I have one more question for you. Sure. If Hannibal makes it to the finals, what are its chances at beating Game of Thrones in the Hulu Best in Show? <laughs> I think they're very good. Um, I honestly think that this tournament is ruled by Tumblr and Twitter and, and whatever social media organization you can use to um, rally the masses. And I think the Hannibal fandom is as, as rabid a fandom as I've seen at this point. What is fascinating to me is the way that this show's ratings – on a Friday night, they started out low and then they dropped. And they have, since they dropped, they've been going up a little bit every week. And, like, I've just been amazed at sort of the, the passion and intensity of the fan base uh, everywhere that you can notice it. Um, and, uh, like, I, I think I think this is its time. You know, Game of Thrones is obviously the more popular show in general. But when it comes to rallying a bunch of people to vote hundreds of times an hour for one show, I, I, I think Hannibal's going to be able to do that. And I, I, I don't know that Game of Thrones is. Do you think that something like that helps with the show's chance at a longer future? You know, aside from the fact that they have a pretty sweet deal in terms of the production? Uh, you know, it can't hurt. It's one of those things where I doubt it helps that much, but it's it, it, it's nice to have it. You know, it's nice to, to be able to point to that and say this is a thing that happened. Um, and it's nice to have that extremely active fan base online and, and and have a show that is monetizable in other ways. Like like Brian Fuller linked to they're making some of those. I don't know. I can't remember what they're called, but they're like the big headed like pop. I think they're called uh, the big headed like dolls you get can get. Bobbleheads. Not even bobblehead like um I don't know. You see them at Barnes and Noble. Like I can't remember. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. The 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 Funko figures. I think they are. Um, they're making some of those for Hannibal, and they're making these weird T-shirts. And like, like that is all you know. Signs of this is a this is a monetizable fan base, and I think that that uh, I think that that helps the show a lot because this is a show that people are going to get passionate about and they're going to spend their money on. Well, and also, I mean, I don't know how much how widespread this is, and how much this is just an echo chamber of who I follow on Twitter, but. There are more and more people starting to to catch up with the show and to start with season one. And I obviously this is a show that immediately limits its potential audience just based on its content and its its center and the fact that it's really not a show for everyone. But I'm starting to see sort of what you started to see uh, in the the later seasons of Breaking Bad, where people we're hearing all this buzz and then finally we're willing to give it a shot yeah. and start and start to catch up. So I don't know if the show will be around long enough where people can keep, you know, joining in and joining in in season two and season three, but potentially if it, if it can stick around for like another season, I think it, 
I would not be surprised if there was a much larger audience ship by the end of this season or by next season than there is right now. I, I'm, I'll, I'll put it on the line. I'd be, I'll be very surprised if this show is canceled. Um, I just, I think that like, I think that worrying about TV cancellations is, is increasingly a thing of the past. There's so many different ways to make money on a show that if the show galvanizes some portion of some uh, fan base anywhere, um, I, I think it's going to run for roughly the length of, of what its life is going to be. My one concern with Hannibal is the Silence of the Lambs rights issues, um, which they're obviously, you know, not. I don't know if they're going to be able to get them, but I, I'm not worried about this show getting canceled before season five. Like, I, I, I'm not at all. Yeah, and hopefully those mini arcs like uh, Hannibal's mayoral race will really draw in a lot of more viewers. Um, so we have that to look forward to. On the but, other uh, hand, I, on the other hand, I also think Enlisted is getting renewed, and like that is the that is the, <laughs> obviously the craziest thing to believe in history. So don't listen to me. I'm knocking on wood right now because <laughs> I would like both of those things to happen. <laughs> I'm definitely sending out my good vibes there. Perfect. Um, but that's probably a good place to end this week's discussion. Kate and I will be back next week to talk about episode uh, six, Putamono. Uh, just again, thank you once more, Todd, for coming in and talking with us. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, I am most of my writing appears at the AV Club. I occasionally write at uh, Grantland and uh, the LA Times and Salon. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash TVOTI. And uh, my podcast is TV on the Internet. We just did a new episode this week on any number of things, but mostly True Detective, Girls, and Good Wife. And that is at TVOTI.net. Um, and uh, thank you very much. And once again, Todd, you're also hosting the, the Hulu Best in Show right now. So yes. Hannibal fans, be sure to check that out and vote for Hannibal. I guess right now it's in the semifinals, right? Yes, yes. Hulu.com slash best in show right now. It's showing down with uh, Community and Game of Thrones and Orphan Black are the other matchup. Perfect. And uh, Kate, as always, it's been great. Where can our listeners find you online? You can find my writing at soundonsite.org, and you can follow me on Twitter at The Televerse, which is also the Twitter for my weekly TV podcast at Sound on Sight. That's more generic, uh, covering the rest of TV. Uh, that's The Televerse. Um, also this week, finishing up the Walking Dead podcast for this season uh, on Sunday, and the next week we'll be starting the Game of Thrones podcast. So so lots of lots of ways for you guys to hear me ramble on a bit too long about TV. And you can find my Hannibal reviews weekly at tvovermind.com where I contribute. And obviously, I'm also a contributor to Sound on Site. And my TV blog is thereisnothingon.com. And that's it for this week. Thank you again, listeners, for tuning in. This has been another episode of This Is Our Design. <laughs>